As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. Um, As always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm joined by my dad, John Wyatt. Hi, John. Hi, good to be here. Uh, so this is a kind of part two, continuing our conversation from last week, where we, we discussed the the tragedy of Archie Battersby. Um, uh, for the, I mean, we recommend if you haven't heard last week, it won't really make much sense until you do. So do do go back and check out that one. But to briefly recap the story, um, he's a twelve year old boy. Um, he was tragically uh, messing around at home with with some kind of ligature and accidentally kind of strangled himself. Um, for for some time, we don't know exactly how long. He was found by his mum, kind of unconscious at home, rushed to hospital, uh, put on life support. Uh, but it was determined by his doctors that um, too much oxygen deprivation from to his brain had had caused him to to die, uh, and they wanted to to uh, to do a formal kind of brainstem test and ultimately to withdraw his life support and let him die. Uh, his parents strongly resisted this. Uh, and they ended up fighting a complex legal battle through the courts over several months uh, and eventually the courts ruled in favour of the NHS doctors in the hospital uh, and Archie's uh, life support was eventually withdrawn and he died earlier in, in August. Um, we mentioned last week, John, we kind of talked about how the, the law works in these cases, uh, you know, how the judge is, is obliged to consider the views of the of the professionals, the views of the parents but ultimately the decision is made according to what is believed to be in the best interests of the patient in this case Archie um, and we talked about how it's these issues are coming happening more and more because of the advances in medical technology meaning that we can now through things like mechanical ventilation and, and other forms of life support we can kind of keep people alive keep their heart pumping and their lungs breathing uh, for months or maybe even years in cases um, it does feel like these these cases are becoming more and more common. Is that your kind of sense as well? If so, why do you think that is? Yes, I think they are becoming more common. I mean, there, there have always been these cases, um, and until recently, very few of them came into the public domain. And to be honest, you know, I, working as a consultant, uh, was involved in a number of cases in my career which involved these tragic uh, examples of babies and children with severe and, and catastrophically severe uh, brain damage and after discussion with parents and often quite long and agonizing painful discussion and sometimes getting second opinions and all the rest there was an agreement together that we would withdraw 
life support and and we tried to do this in as sensitive and, and caring and compassionate way as possible um, as, as much as possible we would have the parents present and there uh, and to cuddle and care for the child as we actually we uh, disconnected the machinery and uh, providing a, a private uh, place where where people could uh, grieve and, and, and the loss of their uh, child and and actually uh, my uh, experience was although these occasions could be absolutely tragic and heartrending uh, when they were well managed and parents felt they were being loved and supported and the right decisions were being made that actually when a child died a pain free and at peace uh, in the parents arms supported by the staff um, I think I and I have taught that this should be seen as a triumph of, of medical care rather than being a terrible failure. Uh, we can't keep every baby alive. We can't keep every child alive, but we can ensure that every child uh, receives the best possible care and that those where it's not possible for them to survive, that death occurs uh, uh, with with proper care and palliative care and support of the parents and so on. So. Death itself, although always tragic, is not the ultimate failure. Um, but it, it does appear as though that kind of idealised scenario of parents, doctors in accord, acting, doing together what they believe is in the best interest of the child, that is, is under attack. And it seems that there are more cases happening now where there appears to be a breakdown of trust and communication between the doctors and um, and the parents. And, and sadly, that was very obvious in Archie's case, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, when you read the, the initial judgment, um, there's several points where it becomes clear that quite early on, the parents just completely stopped believing that the, the doctors and nurses who were looking after Archie actually you know, had his best interests at heart. And it's just, you know, things that seem on the outside kind of slightly silly actually take on a real horrible kind of significance. So for example, the uh, it was heard in, in the court that the, the parents started to doubt whether the brain scan images that they were being shown uh, were actually of Archie. The doctors were saying, look at these images, these show that there's no activity, his brain is starting to die, uh, this liquid is building up inside his skull, this is all signs that like he cannot recover and there is no hope. And they started to question whether these actually were of Archie or were there some other, some other patient, uh, which is just a kind of tragic, if you, if you kind of follow that train of thought, the idea that doctors would, would try and mislead parents in that way is just really quite desperate. Yes, and... Um... You know, trying to unpick why why is there this sort of progressive loss of trust between parents and doctors? It, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I certainly partly it's just the loss of trust of experts generally. I mean, in in that sense, um, you know, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that that uh, generally we are much more suspicious and mistrustful of experts than we were, say, fifty years ago. Definitely. And you see that in lots of areas. You can see that in kind of survey data. People talk about how much they trust politicians, how much they trust uh, scientists and academics. And I think there's clearly, we talked about this before in the podcast, how in the medical profession, there's been a massive shift from historically, it was an incredibly deferential profession. And there was this idea of doctor knows best and, and patients were kind of, you were kind of raised into this idea that you just you just do whatever the doctor said unquestioningly and we've done an almost a kind of a, a 180 about turn in the last 
maybe 30 or 40 years on that, where now we come to a, a point where some patients kind of have the opposite idea in that the doctor is, it's not the doctor knows best, but the doctor is simply a provider of services and I am a con- consumer or a customer. And I, the customer knows best and the doctor is there just to do what I ask them to do. Yes, and a kind of you know extreme example would be a hairdresser. You know, you go along to a hairdresser, you hope that the hairdresser is competent in what they do, but basically it's pretty clear who is the boss. You say, I want it this way, I want it that way. And, and the hairdresser, if they're any good, say, absolutely. And are you sure you want this? And, you know, and they say, yeah, I'm absolutely sure. Okay, then you're the boss. So, but healthcare is not like that. And no. um, it's, it's pretty obvious that expecting um, the, you know, the patient to be able to say, well, would you like mechanical ventilation? Do you think we should do dialysis or not? Or would, would you like to be... Uh, you know, resuscitated and under these systems, and would you like to receive chemotherapy and so on? Clearly, um, the that simplistic client and uh, te- technician uh, concept doesn't work. And so, I think what is generally accepted is there has to be a collaborative relationship. And and I've tried to promote the idea of an expert expert relationship. I think we've talked about this before, haven't we, in the previous podcast? But mm-hmm. the idea being that. The health professionals are supposed to be experts. They're experts in terms of diagnosis. They're experts in terms of treatment options. They're experts in terms of likely consequences of different options and so on. But parents are also experts. They're experts in terms of their life history, in terms of their philosophy, in terms of their background and desires and aims for their child and so on. And so ideally what we should happen what should happen is a collaboration between experts where together a consensus is agreed as to what's in the best interest of the child. And I think you saw hints of that maybe not explicitly stated in, in how the judge approached the case in that they were careful to note that that Archie's family know him best. They can give evidence on he, who he is as a person before his accident before he arrived in hospital, they can share knowledge that they've gained. You know, his, his mother has basically spent every waking hour that she wasn't in court by his bedside since since April. And so she has a huge amount of knowledge and insight into him, his position. And then the doctors, she says, quite, quite, quite rightly are also experts. You know, they've spent decades in many cases acquiring expertise. They might have treated hundreds or thousands of similar cases. And so the judge says, I, before me, I'm receiving expert evidence from, from two experts. And my job, as you say, is to try and absorb these facts and this information and then not give one priority over the other, but ascertain in, in, in having looked at all of that, what is in Archie's best interest. And that seems, as a kind of outsider, like the most kind of profitable, wise way to proceed. The problem is, of course, is that there have been a regular stream of catastrophic medical disasters and where it turned out that doctors who claim to be experts and who claim to be acting in the best interests of patients subsequently after horrific things happened and inquiries were held you know had a whole series of those kind of scandals haven't we we had the bristol heart scandal we had older hay retained organ scandal we had harold shipman a gp who was actually murdering his patients at an enormous rent and every time one of these new scandals hits the uh, the press and I have to say sometimes journalists really go to town in terms of um, the the failures and 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 it being very explicit about the failures. The trouble is it's another knife in the in the in the coffin of um, 
establishing trust. How do I know that the doctor who says this is what's best for your child and we've done all the proper tests and this is what the tests show, how do I know that they aren't one of these terrible um, medical monsters? Mm. And how do you think doctors can re-establish or, su- or sustain trust? I mean, it's it's fascinating and concerning to me how quickly the Battersby family fell out of trust with their doctors. I mean, maybe they arrived never, maybe they were, it was, they were never going to trust the doctors for their own reasons, but clearly something happened in those first few days. I mean, they speak about how they were really hurt when doctors, I think after three days after Archie arrived, sat them down and tried to have a conversation about organ donation, and, and they were kind of shocked and appalled that that was being discussed at this point rather than the prospect of Archie's recovery. Do, do you think doctors need to kind of wise up about how sensitively they approach families to sustain that trust? Well, I, I, I do think, I mean, it's terribly easy to be wise after the event, but in retrospect, um, you can't help feeling that if um, greater care had been made to try and maintain trust, to try to bring the, the parents into your confidence, and, and to ensure that the parents understand that you are trying desperately to do the best for their son, um, then it's possible that, that a lot of the breakdown uh, in trust could have been avoided. But it, it does seem to me as though there are some fundamental sociological shifts here. And, it, it, you know, we're, ne- we're never going to go back to those deferential view that doctors know best. And therefore, uh, this does seem to me uh, a, a continuing issue about about how to uh, prevent a progressive breakdown of trust between patients, parents, relatives and doctors. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. I think another angle of this that we need to discuss is how, you know, you mentioned it's it's about patients, parents and doctors, but really in, in Archie's case and in some other increasing number of these cases, there's really a fourth party, which is the public kind of expressed through social media and traditional media, um, via, often via the Internet. The, the public gets sucked into these bitter, tragic, painful family disputes that traditionally might have been kind of quietly handled, even in court by, you know, a judge. Uh, some lawyers, the hospital and the, and the parents and, and now suddenly everyone has a view, people are taking to Facebook and to social media, to Twitter to, to argue the case uh, and in Archie's case quite interestingly the family launched for example a big kind of crowdfunding campaign um, to, to fund legal fees and other things and, and were quite active on social media in, in trying to kind of build up support for their cause. Yes, and of course this is a new phenomenon again, but we've had a number of these cases, haven't we? Charlie Gard and Alfie Mm -hmm. Evans, and where the parents have been very consciously using the power of the internet to gain awareness, to gain impact, to gain not just money, but to gain support and influence. And of course the way that social media works is it works on outrage, it works on, you know, shock and horror, and so... You know, if you have a post that says doctors are trying to murder precious Archie, this this lovely child, and the parents, the wonderful parents, and those terrible evil doctors are, are wanting to murder him, 
uh, that's the kind of post that can get millions of mm. uh, likes and it can be picked up. You know, and I have to say journalists are also, they're looking for a great story and here's a great, it's got all the ingredients, I'm afraid, to say it rather cynically. It's got all the best ingredients, haven't it? It's got this, this mother who's prepared to speak to camera and who's grieving and it's, she's got these pictures of Archie and then and then you've got the doctors and you've got the hospital and it's, it's a fantastic medical drama. But of course, at its heart, it's just a terrible, appalling tragedy yeah and I have to say I often get quite frustrated reading some of the coverage because particularly that from other countries there's this, there's this huge seams of ignorance being mined here about how the law works about how medicine works and I mean I have to say I often get sucked into a culture war in, in the states where there's obviously a very different medical and legal culture and, and, and background and yet people are just kind of blithely wading in talking about NHS death panels sentencing young children and parents having no rights over their children and and you know yeah it, it's just you don't want to say like leave it to the experts I understand that these are issues of huge public concern and it's right that 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 we can kind of debate these issues around ethics um, but I don't think anyone who actually read what the judges said or read what the doctors said could conclude that these are monsters, callous, inhuman bureaucrats sentencing innocent children to death. You could disagree with them strongly. That's a very legitimate position. But you can't sustain the kind of cartoonish villain-like state that they sometimes acquire on, online, which is, I think is just really unhealthy. It creates a toxicity in the public conversation and makes it harder to do what we're trying to do, which is carefully unpick all the ethical challenges involved. Yes, and I think a, a perspective which is often forgotten is is of the health professionals who are involved because there is a particular, I mean, caring for desperately sick children and particularly where the outlook seems hopeless is in itself an extremely stressful and, and, and difficult issue. And it's particularly the, the intensive care nurses who are in, in this kind of situation, you have a one-on-one, -on -one, you have one nurse or sometimes even two nurses continuously caring for one patient and the whole you know they might be on a shift for eight or 12 hours the whole of that shift is spent in, in meticulously caring for every aspect of 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 um of the child's care and and certainly situations where uh, medics and nurses can increasingly feel that what they're doing to the child is completely wrong they feel you know, I'm torturing this child. I'm continuing to do all these uh, unpleasant, invasive procedures uh, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, when I know perfectly well that the brain is disintegrating, that the uh, everything, all the organs are deteriorating. And, uh, and then to make it worse, uh, when I go out of the hospital, I find there are chanting people with placards saying save Archie and stop these medical monsters and so on and and you can the the emotional distress and in fact the same has happened in other cases where some uh, hospital staff have been permanently traumatized you know they went into this because they thought they were trying to do the best they're desperately trying to love these children and do everything possible and then they discover that they're now caught into this vast political and, and media storm and and that they turn out to be the baddies they are the people who who have become the, the the target for hate mail and so on i mean I, I remember being particularly struck by the case of alfie evans um that was a few years ago here in the uk a, a young a young boy who was born with a incredibly rare and, and um severe kind of neurological condition which 
degenerative and would eventually lead to his death and and after a few years the doctors kind of again applied for permission to the courts because they couldn't agree with the parents that they wanted to withdraw treatment and, and allow him to die and this became a big flashpoint and in that case there was this kind of Alfie's army they called themselves on social media and that actually started spilling over into real life where there were there were protests outside the hospital in Liverpool where Alfie was being cared for and and as you say healthcare professionals were being hounded and and it just became incredibly toxic and I just thought actually none of these people do they really care about Alfie or is this actually starting to spill over into a broader culture war a broader kind of cry, howl of outrage and anger as you say it dry, it's driven by anger and I think we see that there's elements of that in Archie's case where I think we have to talk about the role of the kind of the activist campaigners who got who got involved in Archie's case uh, both in kind of terms of you know, funding and providing some of the legal team, but also in terms of amplifying some of the messages online and and making petitions and organizing protests outside the courts. This, this we we can't avoid the fact that these cases are no longer just about little children and who are desperately sick and about the best what's in their best interest. But these become part of a broader culture war, which we see is 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 locked into things around you know, as you say, kind of anti elitism and and. Um, yeah, campaigns around euthanasia and abortion and stuff like that. And I think, um, in particular, uh, what there is a deep mistrust of the state, isn't it? Mm. So it's not just the doctors that we don't mistrust. The people we mistrust most of all is the power of the state. Yeah. And so wherever the state is imposing, by force of law, something which, for whatever reason, people feel is wrong... Uh, then this just feeds into this fundamental polarization between, uh, and a lot of this is coming from the states, isn't it? The idea that ultimately uh, all government is deeply uh, suspicious, it's deeply flawed, mm. and and the best way forward is to have small government, minimum amount of government appearance, just let people do what they want. So what does that mean in the, in this case? Well, what it would mean is if the parents can raise enough money and we're probably talking about hundreds of thousands if not millions of pounds or dollars and then if they can find a hospital anywhere in the world that is prepared to take um, Archie uh, or or the equivalent case then what's wrong with it why should not people just be able to say he's my child I want him to carry on having this life-supporting treatment for as long as possible. I've raised the money. Why can't I do it? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? I guess one one response might be that children are not the possession of their parents, but they are in some way they belong to all of us. And therefore, that is why the state takes an interest in their interests. Uh, That's why the state says, you know, parents' views are important, but they're not unlimited. And actually we say as a society we want people to flourish and to thrive according to these broad principles we don't just live in atomized islands where each household is a is a government unto itself Uh, but i don't know i mean what do you think do you think it would have been reasonable for archie if they were able to this was an issue in alfie's case alfie evans's case where the parents were quite keen and found a hospital a vatican-run hospital in rome that was happy to take him and potentially try some experimental treatment or at least uh, not withdraw his life support uh, and they asked for permission and they had a helicopter ready and all this stuff and the court said no no we want him to 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 die effectively in the uk rather than be sent to rome to stay alive yes and i i think you're right that the 
whenever this has been tested in court, uh, the UK judges have said, we are in the UK and every child who is you know, under the jurisdiction of the UK and the UK law and UK courts comes under the Children Act and the Children Act says that it's the best interest of the child which must be determined and, and it's ultimately the responsibility of the judge. Once, once this case has come to court, the judge hears the evidence from all these different people but ultimately the responsibility is on the judge to say I have to decide the optimal solution to this intractable dilemma and so far judges have tended to come down with the agreed medical view now there are people saying this is fundamentally paternalistic it's a new kind of state paternalism mm. and why should it be that ultimately it's the medical view which should always sustain and I, I'm, I have to say I'm quite conflicted about this. I think the honest answer is, is if, I, if I was the consultant in charge of Archie's case and, the, and we were having a private conversation and it hadn't come to the courts, if um, it become apparent that there was a complete breakdown, we were never going to get agreement from the parents. And if the parents had come to me and say, look, I've arranged, I've got raised the money, I've contacted a hospital, wherever it is, in the States or in Rome or wherever, and I've, I can arrange for a Medivac uh, transfer to take this child, and I understand it might actually be damaging to the child, I understand the child might die during the Medivac trip, but nonetheless, that's what I would like to do. Will you allow me to do it? I think, after full discussion, and as long as the parents understood the risks, I, with a heavy heart, I would have said, yes, I agree. Um, is that not an abdication of your responsibility to the patient? Is that not saying, do you know what, I wash my hands of you. I, in my heart of hearts, I don't think you're better off in Rome. I think you're better off being allowed to die here in the UK. But because it's too painful or too difficult to be in conflict with the parents, I'm prepared to allow a second best outcome to happen. Well, sometimes I, it's compromise. And I think part of this expert-expert relationship, I, this has happened on numerous occasions, not, not in this particular example, but in similar kind of things where I definitely think the right course is A. The parents are absolutely saying we can't do A. We think the right course is B. I think that B is terrible. Could we agree on C? Could we find a compromise position where at least we can agree that this is the best way forward and I, I think that is in a broken difficult complex world sometimes compromise is not a dirty word it's compromise is the best solution the, the reality is the alternative would be you know I think I could have seen the writing on the wall the alternative would be Charlie goes in a hospital in a, in a medivac flight to uh, somewhere else or else we either have three months of interminable legal dispute this child stays in here we have all the hostility we have all the crowd media we have all the and eventually Archie's going to die but he's he's going to die with an enormous parent hostility is that indubitably better for Archie is that better for everyone I mean it isn't obvious is it that that is the best solution and therefore I think there is a place for um, for a kind of compromise and so Behind all this, therefore, is giving more parental autonomy, more rights to the parent. So, and interestingly, some of the commentators who've been involved in these cases say that they think, therefore, that helping parents to develop the legal re refuge of a power of attorney, a legal statement, this doesn't 
apply for a child, but it certainly would apply uh, in an adult's case um, if the adult in advance had nominated um, another legal representative, which could be, for instance, a parent, it could be a friend, a sibling, it could be a lawyer, but you nominate somebody and you say, I am going to give you legal power of attorney uh, in this particular case, then I think um, it, that might provide a solution to this kind of in, intractable uh, disputes. It, it isn't, it isn't a, a magic bullet. There are always going to be disputes. But looking forward, I think these kind of problems are going to recur and we as societies need to find a way of breaking the deadlock, which is so damaging on all sides. Just lastly then, one of the really interesting kind of contributions or commentaries on this has come from a, a group called the Anscom Centre for Bioethics, which is a, based in Oxford in the UK and is kind of a Christian um, based in kind of the Catholic tradition. And, and they've, they, they've said, echoed some of those concerns about how the British system kind of seems to not recognise the rights or, or the validity of the life of those who are kind of minimally or conscious or unconscious and has some concerns about how the parental rights are being eroded. And, and one of their suggestions or kind of policy suggestions is about how we need to lean much harder into kind of delegating through power of attorney. Uh, so in advance of, of these kind of things, having written kind of statements that saying, if I become in a coma, if I am on life support, here are my wishes and here is a person who is conscious and able to take part in the court proceedings, who I delegate legal authority to. And they're saying that might help protect people who are worried that they could end up in the position that Archie's parents were. Uh, what, what do you think of that suggestion? Well, I do think there is some merit in it. I think it's mainly where this is valuable is in slightly different situations. These are people who have chronic disabilities. For instance, you might have somebody who has severe uh, problems because of um, a chronic neurological condition. Uh, they're in a wheelchair. They struggle every day, and yet they're uh, with with medical problems. And yet they're very, very strongly of the belief that their life is worth living and that they want to carry on living for as long as possible. The worry is that if they become acutely unwell and are admitted to hospital, that and particularly if they become unconscious, doctors may come along and say, well, their quality of life is useless, and we think the best thing to do is just to switch off life support and allow them to die. And it's that kind of concern that there, there is a form of medical paternalism there that isn't really valuing um, a life which could be from the outside look very disabled, very limited and so on. And, and so in this situation, uh, what uh, a number of uh, ethicists and lawyers are suggesting is that the best protection is for the parent, uh, is for the person in advance to write uh, the power of attorney to give to a nominated person and to explain to them if you are if it happens and I'm unconscious in the hospital you have the legal right to say we insist that um, you continue to provide full life support because this is what the person would have wanted. Hmm. Well we kind of run out of time to discuss this any further I'm sure there's plenty more angles we could go down um, but I hope that's kind of helped elucidate some of the the big questions lying behind the kind of horrible tragedy that is Archie's um, uh, life and, and death um, as ever we're interested in your thoughts or reflections or suggestions for other things to talk about if you'd like to get in touch with us you can email molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk uh, there's more resources to dig into and uh, and enjoy um, uh, kind of to, to progress your thinking on this question at john's website j-o-h-n 
W-Y-A-T-T.com. Uh, and always, uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a review uh, online that helps other people find it. And please do tell your friends. Uh, we'd love to get some of these conversations uh, out further and further. But thanks for listening, and uh, we'll speak to you next week. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.